Another big handout. Open your Bible to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. And I was thinking of an opening illustration, but since I can't top last week's, we're just going to go straight into it. So if you don't know what I mean, you need to listen to last week's opener and uh, just pretend that I inserted it here. My title is The 70 Weeks of Daniel, Part 2, A Reasonable Approach. The 70 Weeks of Daniel, Part 2, A Reasonable Approach. And we're going to get right to it today, but before, before we do, I just want to say this. If you missed last week, um, you are going to be caught off guard by what you're about to read. Uh, you may not have read it in a while, but this portion of Daniel, chapter 9, especially verses 24 to 27, is widely considered the most difficult passage in all of Scripture. Um, many scholars believe that. And I myself, having gone through the Word, this is the one that stumped me the most. And so we approach today with great humility, with great reliance on the Holy Spirit. We're asking Him to, to guide our study and to guide our search for truth. But at the same time, I'm not going to be dogmatic today. Uh, I'm not going to say this is the only way to interpret it, because it's not. Uh, but I'm going to give you what I believe through my study, and I believe through uh, the guidance of the Lord, how I see God using this passage in all of Scripture to show us His truth. So let's take a look at it right now. Daniel chapter 9. Let's all stand as we read it together. Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. I'm going to read it one time all the way through. 20 to 27. Daniel 9, verse 20 to 27. Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin, and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God, for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, an angel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me, and he talked with me, and he said, O oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplication, the command of God went out, and I have come to tell you, and you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. And here's the vision. Here's the prophecy. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end for sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the Most Holy. Therefore, know therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of that week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. You may be seated. 
Once again, if you're not humbled by a passage like this, you're not reading it properly. Uh, Last week, we considered more than 30 questions, 30 questions that we could ask of Daniel 9. And if we had more time together, we could have asked another 30 more and probably another 30 more after that without batting an eye. Scholars of all stripes admit that this is one of the hardest passages in Scripture. And so as we try to make sense of it, we approach it carefully. I myself am uh, am personally sympathetic to many views on Daniel 9. And I see good points in many different views. But today, I want to put forth what I believe to be a reasonable approach. Reasonable does not mean beyond dispute. What I'm about to, uh, how I interpret this is, is not beyond dispute. There's going to be many disagreements and many questions that remain. Nevertheless, let's take a look at the best sense of this prophecy of Daniel. The first thing I want to say is I want to go through a list of some things on your outline. I want to say it's reasonable. These, these few things here I want to say are reasonable. Number one, it's reasonable to infer that the term 70, 70 in verse 24 is meant to draw our attention to the exile of Israel. So he starts off the prophecy, Daniel does, and he says, Seventy-sevens are determined. Seventy-sevens. And I'm suggesting to you that it is reasonable for us to see the term seventy and to think in our mind, exile. Why? Look back at Daniel 9, verse 2. Jump back to verse 2 in your Bible. In Daniel 9, verse 2, it says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books, uh, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years, 70 years, in the desolations of Jerusalem. This chapter began with a focus on 70. It began with a focus on 70. And the 70 that was in mind, in Daniel's mind, as he began to pray to the Lord, was the 70 years of exile, slavery, when Israel was taken from her homeland by Nebuchadnezzar and sent to Babylon. And she remained there 70 years. And Daniel is writing from Babylon. He's writing from slavery. And so he's praying toward the end of these 70 years. And he's considering Jeremiah's prophecy. He's considering this 70 years of exile. When we see 70 in verse 24, we should think exile. Two, the term weeks, also known as sevens, in verse 24 is meant to draw our attention to either Sabbath rest or continued exile or perhaps both. Now, I've given you some references there in Leviticus 25 and 26. We don't have time to turn there. Suffice to say that the term seven, uh, excuse me, the term week, sabuim in Hebrew, it really means groups of seven. It can mean groups of seven days, groups of seven weeks, groups of seven years. And, uh, and, And as we look at this term weeks, groups of seven, we should be thinking in terms of Sabbath rest. Why? Because on the seventh day, God rested. The seventh day was the day that Israel rested. But it also, it also could connote or could mean, could symbolize continued exile. Why? Because if you look at Leviticus chapter 26, it talks about how Israel, they're going to be sent off because of disobedience. And if they don't respond to the Lord, 
Leviticus 26 indicates that they'll be punished again sevenfold. So, we have the, the number 70. Number 70, we think exile. We have the number 7, where we think, okay, that could be Sabbath rest, or it could be further punishment. Maybe, uh, maybe a little bit of both. We're not sure. Three, together, together, the phrase, 70 weeks, refers to 70 sets of seven years, or 490 years. And again, it's very reasonable to infer this for a variety of reasons. Number one is there's wide consensus among biblical scholars that 77s or 70 weeks means 490 years. From the most liberal scholars to the most conservative scholars, there's wide agreement here that the phrase 77s in Hebrew means 490 years. It's a delineation of time. It's reasonable to infer this. Four. Now, here's where we start to open our eyes a little bit. And here's where I'm going to deviate from uh, some scholars who would disagree with me. But Jeremiah's prophecy, number four, of 70 years of slavery was an accurate, an accurate accounting of the time of Israel's exile to Babylon. And I list the date, 605 to 536. Now, here's where a lot of scholars will disagree. Some scholars will say, well, yes, Jeremiah said there'd be 70 years of slavery, but boy, it's really hard to find those exact 70 years if you're a historian. And in many respects, they're right. Um, we, we, have a, we have a variety of places where we could start the exile and end the exile, and it's, it, it's a challenge to come up with 70 years. I've submitted to you that the period of the exile is 605 B.C. to 536 B.C. And if you count, as, an, as a Jewish person would count, you would count both the beginning of the exile year and the end of the exile year. So you'd have what's called inclusive counting. And that, that duration of time spans 70 years. Cyrus's decree was around 538 or 539. It would have taken Israel perhaps a year to prepare their exit from Babylon and perhaps almost another year to travel, which would bring them to 536 B.C. And I submit to you that that's a very reasonable uh, assessment of Jeremiah's 70 years of exile. Number five, therefore, if Gabriel's reference, remember, Gabriel the angel is the one giving the prophecy to Daniel. Therefore, if Gabriel's reference to 70 weeks, uh, excuse me, therefore, in light of the fact that Jeremiah's 70 weeks were literal, therefore, Gabriel's reference to 70 weeks ought to be taken literally until proven otherwise. So here's what I'm saying. I'm saying in number four, if Jeremiah's prophecy of 70 years of slavery was to be taken literally, and I believe it can be according to Scripture, if it was to be taken literally, not as a, a manner of speaking, but really there were 70 years of slavery in Babylon, then when we come to Gabriel's prophecy, just a few verses later, in the same time period, within a generation of Jeremiah, when we come to another time span, it seems reasonable that we should take that time span literally until proven otherwise. And so the question becomes, what happens after 490 years? Is this a time of Sabbath rest? 
Or is this a time of continued exile? Perhaps a little bit of both? And when do these 70 weeks begin? When do these uh, 77s begin? Do they begin right away? Well, Daniel actually goes on to tell us that in his book. Take a look at verse 24. The vision of Gabriel to Daniel, beginning in verse 24. He says, Seventy weeks are determined for your people, for your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Did I continue? I did. Let's read verse 25 quickly. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublesome times. Okay. Hang with me. I want you to feel my pain. The 70 years of exile in Babylon was a time of punishment for Israel. She had been sent out to Babylon because of her sin. Her sentence, her punishment, 70 years of slavery. And after the 70 years were up, like any prison sentence, like any sentencing from a judge, after the 70 years were up, there was to be a time of Probation. Probation. A time in which certain things were supposed to happen. And that if Israel met the terms of her probation, there would be blessing. But if she failed her probation, there would be continued curse. I believe, I believe that the 70 weeks we see here in verse 24, the 77s, is a reference to Israel's probation period. God, has going to, God is going to finish the 70 weeks, and then there's going to be a time of probation. When that time starts, we'll see in a moment. Then there's going to be a time of probation in which Gabriel is, is telling Daniel that the Jews have 70 more weeks of probation to get it right. And what are they to do in that probation? They're to do six things. Number one, they're to finish the transgression. Number two, they're to make an end of sins. This is all from verse 24. Number three, they're to make reconciliation for iniquity. Four, they're to bring in everlasting righteousness. Five, to seal up vision and prophecy. And six, to anoint the most holy. Now we'll consider what all of these mean a little bit more in detail a little bit later on. But for now, think of this set of six in two groups. The first group, one, two, and three, concerned with rectifying sin. Dealing with sin. To finish transgression. Make an end for sin. Bring reconciliation for iniquity. The first three tasks deal with sin. And God is saying to Israel, you have 70 more weeks of probation in which I want you to deal with sin. And the second group, items 4, 5, and 6, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy. Well, these things, if we're to speak generally about them, these things concern holiness. They concern integrity. Sealing up a prophecy had to do with maintaining integrity of the Word. To bring in righteousness. To anoint the most holy. 
perhaps reference to the temple. Altogether, these six tasks suggest that Israel is in a time of probation. She's going to begin a probation, a probationary period, in which she's utterly to return to God to be the light she was meant to be. The Bible says the Jews were entrusted the oracles of God. Abraham and Moses were told that there was something special about their people. King David was promised that, that from his seed, a king would come who would rule forevermore. And these six tasks are meant to remind Daniel and all of the Jews of their high calling, their high calling of God. That they have a responsibility before God to warn the world of sin, to point the way to righteousness. God says, I'll give you 70 more weeks. After the 70 years, I'll give you 70 more weeks to get it right. Now, when does this probation begin? Gabriel tells us in verse 25. He says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. Now, we learned last week about how to better translate verse 25. In the middle of verse 25, most of our Bibles read Messiah the Prince. There's a capital M there. Messiah the Prince. But in Hebrew, the phrase Messiah Nagid simply means an anointed one, a prince. It's, it's indefinite. It means an anointed one, a prince. It doesn't necessarily have a, a definite article there. It's not referring to... Uh, it's not defining who this anointed one is. And many of your Bibles simply infer who it is. And we'll see perhaps how they get there. Well, whoever this person is, whoever this anointed one is, we know that Gabriel has given us insight into when, when his anointing comes. Gabriel tells Daniel, from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, scholars are widely disagreed as to why Gabriel splits up seven weeks and 62 weeks. But based on other literature in and around the ancient Near East, it's likely that this was just a poetic way of saying 69 weeks. So there's, there's many, many ancient texts in and around the time of Daniel that will discuss a, a time span and will separate it stylistically into two groups. We might also think again, seven weeks, Sabbath rest perhaps, 62 weeks. Perhaps the Bible is again drawing us to a period of rest. Gabriel says, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So we know that there's 69 weeks altogether. 69 weeks until an anointed one, a prince, comes. Now remember, Jeremiah in Daniel 9, verse 2. Daniel was reading Jeremiah. He was reading the Jeremiah scroll. And as he was reading it, he was learning and re recalling to memory that Jeremiah had prophesied. In Jeremiah 25 and 29, 11, he said, look, he said, 70 years of exile, slavery. 70 years of slavery you will experience. 
So now Daniel is hearing Gabriel's prophecy of 70 weeks, 70 sevens. If Jeremiah's 70 years was a remarkably accurate demonstration of the length of Israel's exile, isn't it natural, isn't it reasonable to now take Gabriel's 69 weeks, literally? And if we do so, what happens? Well, what is 69 weeks? Well, 70 sets of sevens is 490 years. So that would mean that 69, 69 sets of sevens would be 483 years. Take 69 times 7. You get the, the duration of 483 years. Okay. So from a command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, a prince, comes there'll be a duration of 483 years. Now the question remains, is there something that lines up with this? Is there something that lines up with this timetable in Scripture that we have here? Jeremiah's 70 years was remarkably accurate. What about these 69 sevens? Is there something that lines up? Is an anointed one, does an anointed one come after 483 years of a decree? Let's take a look at some options. So here we have the command on the left. We have a command that goes out to rebuild Jerusalem, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And then a duration of 483 years, and then an anointed one comes. Well, scholars are divided as to who this might represent. But here are some of the answers. The first would be these. King Cyrus of Persia, perhaps. What about Zerubbabel? What about Joshua the high priest? These, all these, uh, these men, these individuals, all of them, scholars have, have posited, they've, they've, they've said perhaps it's this one, all of these men could have been considered to be anointed of God. And all of them lived around the time of 539 B.C. So we have Cyrus of Persia. He was the first one to tell the Jews they, they could go home. He could be the anointed one. He's referenced as an anointed one in Isaiah 45. Or what about Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel was one of those who brought the, uh, brought the Jews back to the land. He was one of the first who brought them back and was a hero to Israel. What about Joshua, the high priest? He was also restoring the sacrifice and the worship as they returned to their homeland. But the problem is, the problem with these anointed ones, is that if you go back 483 years from 539 B.C., you get to 1017 B.C. And that's awfully strange. Because you see, why would Gabriel tell Daniel of a probationary period that had already passed? That doesn't make sense. No, Gabriel's prophesying to Daniel and saying, there's going to be more. Not behind you, in front of you. You've had 70 years in Babylon, and now there's going to be 70 more weeks, 490 more years of probation. It's not behind you. It's in front of you. Okay? What about another option? How about Onias the high priest? This is a very popular uh, selection by many scholars. They say, oh, it's an Onias. You see, Onias was around the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, and we learned about him in chapter 8. You know, he was an awful, Antiochus was an awful uh, Syrian ruler, a crude Gentile, and he killed Onias the priest. And Onias was a, was a great man of God. But again, the problem is, if we go back 483 years... We get to 653 B.C. Again, we're going the wrong way. Why would Gabriel 
be telling Daniel about a period of time that was already partly over. It doesn't seem to make sense. It seems that the probationary period is yet future, is yet ahead of him after the 70 years of exile. And then we come to another option, Jesus. What about Jesus? Well, uh, we, know, we know when he was born. <laughs> we have a pretty good idea. And uh, if we take Jesus' let's say birth, and go back, well, what do we get? 483 B.C., right? Right? Well, 483 B.C., nothing happened around that day and age. Historians, you know, you can go a few years this way, a few years that way. There's no decree. There's no command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Nothing even remotely close to it. Not even within a decade. So we have a problem. Who's the anointed one? that comes after seven weeks and 62 weeks. But you see, we have a problem with some of our dating behind me. You see, Jesus was not, I submit to you, uh, and scholars are generally agreed, that Jesus was not born at the center point of the B.C. to A.D. era, the, the change there. Instead, most scholars are of the persuasion that Jesus was born in 4 B.C. 4 B.C. If we were to take Jesus' birth at 4 B.C., and then we were to go out to the time when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, you might say anointed, we would get to this date, 26 or 27 A.D. And what's fascinating about that date is that if you go back 483 years, you now come to another date. Instead of 483, you get 457. And something significant happened in 457. In 457, King Artaxerxes of Persia gave the most profound decree, the most profound command to the Jews to go back to their land and to not just leave where they had come from, but to be totally separate and set apart as their own people again. There are four things that make this decree unique. Well, two of these these four make it especially unique, I should say. The first is this. King Artaxerxes' command authorized the return of the Jews to Jerusalem. Okay, nothing new there. We've seen that one before with Cyrus. But number two, it authorized the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. Again, not, not so much new there. We saw some of those commands earlier. Here's where it goes further. Number three, he authorized the restoration of Jewish autonomy. Independence. Cyrus did not do this. When Cyrus told the Jews to go back, they went back under his jurisdiction. They did not have independence. Whereas you read Ezra 7, And you read the decree of King Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes says, I want you to go back. I want you to rebuild the temple. And I want you to be your own people. And then number four, the restoration of Jewish law. These last two in particular, these last two items in particular, are unique to Artaxerxes' command, to his decree. And as he sent them out, the decree in Ezra chapter 7, if you want to go back and read it yourself, that historians are widely agreed happened in 457 B.C., that that decree 
was a significant decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. It was to build up the people. It was to build up the city. It was to build up the nation again. It wasn't just permission to leave like Cyrus. It wasn't just permission to leave and take a little bit with you like Darius. Artaxerxes' command was, went further and deeper than any decree before it. It gave the Jews complete freedom to be their own people again. And I submit to you that this very well could be the decree that we are to look for according to the angel Gabriel. Remember, we have to look for a decree here. It's not as if Gabriel is prophesying to Daniel and saying, well, there's going to be a decree that goes out. Bad. Don't worry about that. That's just kind of spiritual talk. And then an anointed one's going to come, but don't worry about that. That's just symbolic stuff. No, this is real prophecy here. Gabriel's saying there's going to be a decree. There's going to be 69 sevens. And then an anointed one's going to come. And so we need to make sense of it. Some scholars say Cyrus, Zerubbabel, Joshua. Others say Onias. I find those answers unreasonable. They don't make sense. They don't make sense of any time period, of any span of 69 sevens. The one that makes the most sense is the decree of Artaxerxes in 457 that leads to the anointing, the baptism of Jesus Christ. Back to Daniel chapter 9. Gabriel prophesies to Daniel. He says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, that is the command of King Artaxerxes, until Messiah the Prince, that is Jesus, that's how they get there. That's how they get to who this man is instead of an anointed one, a prince. Many of your Bibles have Messiah in capital letters. Until Jesus, the prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, 483 years. And the book of Nehemiah, here's something that's noteworthy. The book of Nehemiah attests to the fact that there would be much trouble in the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And so Gabriel rightly says, the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And now we come to verse 26. Verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, after, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Okay, we learn in verse 20, 25 that Messiah is anointed after seven weeks, in 62 weeks, or 483 years. And here we see that after, that after that 62 weeks, or after the full duration of it, the 483 years, it says Messiah shall be cut off, but not for Himself. I submit to you that it is very reasonable, and that it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know what this means. Surely it's reasonable to take this as the death of Jesus Christ until Messiah is cut off, until He dies, until He's removed, but not for Himself. Fascinating statement by Gabriel to Daniel. For not only was Jesus cut off by crucifixion, but He was cut off not for Himself. Isaiah 53, verse 5, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, chastised for our peace, and by His stripes... 
we are healed. Jesus died, not for, his, not for himself, not for his own interests, not for his own uh, consideration. He died for you and for me. And here we see Daniel prophesying about it through the angel Gabriel. And we saw Isaiah before him prophesy in Isaiah 53, verse 5. Is this reasonable? You bet it is. Genesis 3.15 spoke of a coming Messiah. It was revealed through Moses in Deuteronomy that there would be a coming prophet after him. Isaiah said that there's a Messiah, he's coming, and he's going to die. And he's going to die for you and for me. And here we have Gabriel telling Daniel in the line of Genesis and Deuteronomy and Isaiah and Jeremiah and all the way down, the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he's going to die. Which, for Daniel, would, would blow his mind. It, it wouldn't make sense. Why is the anointed one of God going to die? He was wounded for our transgressions, Isaiah writes, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So also Daniel writes in verse 26 that he'll be cut off, but not for himself. And then it continues. After 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Okay, two things. Two things that, Daniel, that Gabriel tells Daniel is going to happen. Number one, this is two things after the 62 weeks. So after the seven and the 62, we're at, four, we're at 483 years of, of probation, if you will. Probation of the Jews. And after these seven and 62 weeks, two things are going to happen. Number one, Messiah shall be cut off. And number two, the people, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Till the end of the war, desolations are determined. Okay, we know that Jesus died. But what about the city and the sanctuary? Well, history demonstrates that in the year 70 A.D., what could be described as a flood of Roman soldiers under the direction of General Titus went to war against the Jewish zealots. In the end, the city, Jerusalem, and the sanctuary, the temple, was destroyed. And in mockery, in mockery of the Jewish way of worship, General Titus, like Antiochus Epiphanes many years before him, defiled the temple by erecting a statue of Zeus in its midst. Now, if the prophecy of Daniel 9 were to end in verse 26, I think we could reasonably say that the people of the prince who was to come to destroy the city and the sanctuary, that if the prophecy of Daniel 9 ended in verse 26, I think we could reasonably say that this was none other than the Roman army under the direction of General Titus, ransacking the city, causing great havoc and destruction. But the problem is, Daniel doesn't stop at verse 26. The prophecy continues to verse 27. And when we get to 27, it throws a wrench in that interpre interpretation. It throws a wrench into that theory that this might have to do with General Titus. 
Take a look at verse 27. Then he, who's he? Who's on first? Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of that week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Okay, lots of questions here. Lots of questions. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Who is he? Who is the many? What is the one week? Verse 27 really complicates things, especially for those who are bent on fitting Daniel 9 into 70 A.D. We had a running theory that perhaps the people of the prince were the Roman armies and that the prince was General Titus. But you see, Titus, he didn't confirm any kind of covenant with anyone, let alone the Jews. There was no covenant to be made, certainly no seven-year covenant, one week. Titus did not befriend Israel whatsoever. He raided the Jewish people. No treaty was signed. There was war. And Titus and Rome, they won the war. And to the winner went the spoils. But here in Daniel 9.27, here in verse 27, a more cunning person seems to be at work. A person that confirms a covenant with many, it says, for one week. Well, from what we've learned about weeks in Hebrew, this is likely a period of seven years. We've already established that. Very reasonable to infer that, actually. Okay, so whoever this cunning person is, this person establishes a covenant with many, whoever the many are, for one week or perhaps a period of seven years. Is this that final week that we've been waiting for? We've already seen, we've already, we've already known about the 70 years of exile. And now Gabriel's come to Daniel and says, now there's going to be probation. Now you're going to get, get out of jail. But as you go back to Jerusalem, there's going to be 77s, 490 years of probation. And let me give you some, some indicators of what will happen during that probation. For six, for, from the command, the decree of Artaxerxes, for 69 sevens will come an anointed one. And then he'll be cut off. Messiah will die. And the people of the prince to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Okay, so here we are in verse 27. And we're asking ourselves, who is he who confirms this covenant for one week? Gabriel also says in the middle of that week, the covenant is broken. And instead of peace, perhaps, there is conflict. Notice what it says. It says in the middle of the week, verse 27, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So here is a person who promises one thing, whatever that thing is, who establishes a covenant, and then reneges on that covenant, on that promise. And what is, and what is it um, that breaks the treaty? What is it that the covenant, why is it that the covenant fails, according to verse 27? The covenant fails, Gabriel says, because he brings an end to sacrifice and offering. That's why the covenant fails. Well, if sacrifice and offering are at stake, 
then we can reasonably infer that it is the Jews with whom this covenant is made. That the Jews are the many. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many, the Jews, for one week, seven years. And in the middle of that week, he'll bring an end. He'll break the covenant with the many. And how will he do it? By abolishing, by prohibiting sacrifice. By prohibiting sacrifice and offering. But who is it? Who is it that makes this treaty with the Jews for a seven year period of time and then transgresses that treaty after three and one half years? Gabriel doesn't say. But whoever he is, we can say a few things about him. I, I, we can say at least this much about him according to Daniel 9. Number one, he comes after Messiah is cut off. The text says that clearly according to verse 26. He comes after Messiah dies. Whoever this prince is, it can't be Antiochus according to so much of the liberal scholarship out there because it is after Messiah is anointed. Secondly, he is not Titus. For Titus made no treaty with Israel. He is not Titus. Whoever this man is, he's not Titus. For Titus made no treaty with Israel. And then I can also say, since history reveals this for us, that no covenant has been made since of a seven-year duration with the people of Israel in which these things occurred, we can say with great confidence that this person is yet future. He is yet future, whoever he is. And if this prince is yet future, then perhaps other portions of Daniel in the New Testament might shed some light on his identity. And sure enough, as it happens time and time again in Daniel, you see chapter 2, and then you see chapter 7. It repeats itself. Well, here you're going to see chapter 7, and then repeat it again in our chapter, chapter 9. Let's go back to chapter 7 and see what it says about this future individual. It says in 7.25, He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and law. And the saints shall be given into His hand for a time and times and half a time. The parallels. The parallels here are striking between Daniel 9 and Daniel 7. Here are just a few. In Daniel 9, the future prince Okay, he who confirms a covenant with many, the people of the prince. In Daniel 9, the future prince will persecute the Jewish people. In Daniel 7, he's known as the little horn, and it says he'll persecute the saints of the Most High. A similar type of person doing a similar kind of persecution. And here's another parallel. In Daniel 9, the future prince will bring an end to sacrifice and offering, according to verse 27. And in Daniel 7, the little horn will intend to change times and law, according to verse 25. In Daniel 9, the future prince's treaty with Israel will be broken in the middle of one week, that is to say three and a half years. And in Daniel 7, the little horn will rule over the saints for how long? A time and times and half a time. I submit to you that is also a duration of three 
and one half years. From these parallels, and we'll see that develop even further in just a moment, from these parallels, is it not reasonable to infer that the one, that, that, that that the prince of Daniel 9 is also the little horn of Daniel 7, that Daniel is receiving further revelation on this coming world ruler. And if it is reasonable to infer this, then the identity of the prince of Daniel 9 is not General Titus, it's not Antiochus, it's not anyone else from a period of history, but it is rather a person who is yet future. He is the Antichrist. He's the final man of sin. The lawless one. The New Testament speaks often of this man of sin. The book of Revelation picks up so many of the themes we see in Daniel 7 and 9. Just a few things to consider as you, as you go home to study. Look at this. According to Revelation, Antichrist will, number one, attempt to harm the Jews. And how long will he attempt to harm the Jews? For 1260 days, according to Revelation 12.6. It's also called 42 months, according to Revelation 13.5. How long is that? Three and one half years. According to Revelation, Antichrist will disrupt temple proceedings for how long? 42 months, according to Revelation 11.2. And this one always strikes me. Antichrist will ultimately fail as God intervenes to protect Israel. For how long will God intervene to protect Israel? For a time and times and half a time, according to Revelation 12.14. We just read that in Daniel 7. A time and time and half a time. Many scholars are perplexed as to what duration of time that refers to. You go to the book of Revelation, you read the Apocalypse of John, he defines it for you. He tells you what a time and time and half a times is. It's 1260 days. It's 42 months. It's three and one half years. Now, many people... not. Many, uh, many scholars, they'll look at these parallels and they'll say coincidence. They'll say, well, you know, this is just, uh, this just happened. You know, John's just spinning off of Daniel and, you know, going with the same, some of the same themes perhaps, but one and the same person, no way. I submit to you that the parallels between Daniel 7 and Daniel 9 in Revelation 11, 12, and 13, that they're too numerous not to take into account that this man, this prince, this little horn, this beast, as he's referred to in Revelation 11, 12, and 13, is none other than one and the same man. He is the Antichrist. Each of them, each of them, Daniel 7, Daniel 9, Revelation 11, 12, and 13, each of these chapters speak of a coming man who will persecute the Jews. Future. Each of them indicate that temple sacrifice and offering will be disrupted. Each of them denotes the duration, the exact duration of time that the persecution will last. Daniel 9 says it'll, that persecution will begin in the middle of one week or seven years. Daniel 7 calls it... it for a time and times and half a time, three and a half years. Revelation uses the same terminology, defining it further as 42 months, 1260 days. A reasonable approach for reconciling these portions of Scripture 
is to recognize the parallels for what they are. It's not impossible. It's not, and I'll say this, it's not impossible that Daniel 7, 9, and the end of Revelation, it's not impossible that they refer to different people. I won't say that. Many good and well-meaning Christians think that it does refer to different people over different ages of time. But I think it unreasonable to take that approach. Based on ample evidence before us, the most reasonable answer is that Daniel and John were receiving visions of one and the same man, the coming man of sin, the Antichrist. And if these parallels were not enough, if these parallels weren't convincing enough, Jesus himself tells us that he believes Daniel's prophecy is yet future. Look at Matthew 25, 24, beginning in verse 15. This is Jesus commentating on Daniel. Quote, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, the temple, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is, in the, who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of the house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened, Jesus said. So once again, we come to our prophecy in Daniel 9. Let me sum it up for you with some helps. Seventy weeks, Daniel says, 490 years, are determined, probation, for your people and for your holy city. And in that time, I want you to finish transgression, Israel. I want you to make an end for sins. Make, make reconciliation for iniquity. Bring in everlasting righteousness. Seal up vision and prophecy. Anoint the most holy. Therefore, know. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command, I believe the command of Artaxerxes in 457 B.C., to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, that is Jesus, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, a total of 483 years. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after, after 62 weeks, or after the 483 years, Messiah shall be cut off. That is, that he is to die. But not for himself. And the people of the prince, that is, Antichrist, the people of the prince who is to come, they shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he, who? Antichrist. The prince shall confirm a covenant with many. Who? Israel. For one week, seven years. But in the middle of that week, on the testimony of Daniel 7, Daniel 9, Revelation 11, 12, and 13, in the middle of that week, three and a half years, he'll bring an end. He'll break the treaty and bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate or the desolator. It speaks there of God coming again to judge and to bring finality to all of this. But in closing, 
In our last moment, we have a question that we would all be remiss to overlook. And it is this. Why the delay between the 69th and the 70th verses? And this, I have to admit, this is the weakest part uh, in, in my understanding of this text and in those who interpret it as I do. This is the weakest piece of the puzzle. Because you see, other scholars who maintain that Gabriel's prophecy to Daniel is historical, it's already over, they look at my approach and those like me and they say, you've got to be kidding. Why do you go to 69 weeks with the death of Messiah and then wait about 2,000 years until the present day and still say that the 70th week is yet to come? How do you do that? How do you make sense of that? How do you possibly you know, deal with this interruption between the 69th week and the 70th week? Well, remember, this is my response to, to that concern. Remember what we said at the onset of this message. We said that these 70 weeks was a probationary period for the Jews. It is a time to test whether or not the Jewish people will fulfill their duty to warn the world of sin, to point the way to everlasting righteousness. And interestingly enough, by the end of week 69, by the end of week 69, when Messiah was cut off, it was clear to the Lord that Israel had failed her probation. Everlasting righteousness had come in the person of Jesus Christ. But when Israel saw their Messiah, they killed Him. And by the end of week 69, God knew His probation isn't going so well. And so, knowing full well that the Jews had already failed her probation, God intervened to do something marvelous. He intervened in His own decree. And much like the way in which He delayed destruction of Nineveh in the story of Jonah, and countless other times in Scripture where God said, you know what? I'm going to respond to you in a way that you'd never believe. And I'm going to do something extraordinary. Something that you did not expect. Something that you couldn't have planned for. And God intervened at the end of the 69th week of Daniel to do something marvelous. And this is what He did. He pressed pause. He pressed pause. And on the testimony of Romans chapter 11, notice what it says. Romans 11, verse 25. Paul writes, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. The mystery something that was not foreseen earlier in human history. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion that, and here's the mystery, blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Speaking of the church. And so, verse 26, after that fullness, and so all Israel 
will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion. He'll turn away ungodliness for Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the Gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God pressed pause at the end of the 69th week. When He knew that they were going to fail this probation, and they had killed their Messiah. He pressed pause, and He started something new. And you know what it is? It's you and me. It's the church. And you know what we have done in lieu of Israel over these last 2,000 years? We have received the blessings and the benefit of salvation. It has been the church in the United States and across Europe and Africa and all the places of the world. It is the church that has sent out the Gospel, not the Jews. It is the church that has proclaimed that Jesus Christ is Messiah, that He's the Lord, and the blessings that God had, in, had, had wanted to pour on His people, His chosen people Israel. He has instead put it on pause and put it on you and me. And we are blessed, blessed, because of this pause, this moment of pause. God stopped their probation because He knew they were going to fail. And He started the church. A mystery. Paul calls it a mystery time and time again. Peter speaks of it as a mystery. Jesus hinted at it. In this time of pause, God raised up another group, the church, through whom the blessings of salvation are being manifest to the world. And now, in this moment of pause, God is looking upon Israel again. And He does not wish her to fail the test. And so He's given Israel the church. The church. To remind her of her roots. To remind her of where she's come from. To remind her that the Messiah that she's been looking for is right before her eyes. It's Jesus. How did Paul put it? Verse 25 that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Elsewhere in Romans, he talks about the fact that the Jews, they look upon the church and they're jealous of the blessing. They're jealous of the blessing of God upon the church. And that it is drawing God's chosen people back to Him. That you and I are drawing them back to Him. And we're on pause still, right now. But the day is coming. The day is coming when God will press play again on the 70 weeks of probation. And it won't be an easy last week, mind you. It won't be an easy seven years. In fact, it'll be a time of great tribulation like never seen in all the earth. But wouldn't you know it, at the end of the 70th week, something happens. Wouldn't you know it? At the end of the probation, something happens to the Jews. They're changed. And they will, on the last day, when they see Jesus, they'll respond, as it says in Zechariah 12, verse 10, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And then they, the Jews, my people, will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they'll mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Those first 69 weeks didn't go so well. 
God knew they were going to fail, Israel. He knew His people were going to fail. And so He pressed pause. Because our God is a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. And He did not want to see the end of His people. And so He pressed pause on His own Word, on His own decree, and blessed Israel with you and I, the church. And when He presses play again, He is going to intervene like never before. Oh, it will be a time of testing again. But at the end of that week, when all is said and done, He will ensure, as He reveals Himself to Israel, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the one in whom Israel is looking for all along. He will ensure Israel passes the test. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for this time in Your Word. God, it's been a great trial to handle this portion of Your Word. And I know for many of us, Lord, it's, uh, it's so much to handle and process and understand. But God, this is so good for us to consider. Because in it we see prophecy being fulfilled. We see decrees going out. We see Your Messiah, Jesus, anointed and then cut off. We see Israel in dire straits. And yet we know on the testimony of Daniel 9 that on the last day she'll pass the test. Because You'll intervene, Lord. And God, we want to be a people who passes the test. We know the way forward, Father. It's by faith in You. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. And if there's any here who do not know Jesus in faith, Lord, there is but one big test in this life. And it is to recognize from whom we've been created. And it is from Jesus Christ. I pray that each and every one here would believe upon Him, would receive everlasting salvation, would pass that test that You have both for us and for Your chosen people. We look forward to the day when Jesus returns, when He reveals Himself again, crushing the enemy, the Antichrist, Satan, and all that is evil. We look forward to the inauguration of the Kingdom of God. In His name we pray. Amen.